Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. practice this thing that we call vertical diversity. What we focus on is not just diversity on the page, because what you'll see is 50% of books featuring black kids aren't actually written by black creators. I think everybody, every culture, every group is capable of telling their own stories, and they have people within those experiences who are more than happy to tell about their walk of life than speaking from that experience and using that mouthpiece for the sake of checking a diversity box. So we kind of just want to make sure that it's sincere. Welcome back. This is Dr. Matt Morris, couples counselor and family therapist, joined as always by my co-host, Eric Garcia, certified financial planner, and this is the Building Us podcast. Eric, I got a question for you. I know you have kids. I have kids. That means you've read a lot of children's books. Um, You've probably read them many, many times, but what's one of your memorable children's books from your childhood? Oh, man. Memorable children's books from my child. I'm going to tell you, that's going to be really hard because since I was a child, I've probably read more children's books as an adult yeah. to my kids. So I, I would say probably my my most memorable children's book is a book. I think it's called Martina, no, La Cucarachita Martina. So it's a, it's a book. Right. It's a, like a, that's like a story that... Um, Cuban parents tell, like, if you go to any any Cuban person and ask them about Martina, like, that's like a cucarachita, it's like a little roach. So it's just a story about the little roach, Martina. That's probably the most memorable, or I would say one of my favorite books to read to my kids. You know, I was just like thinking, I was doing something mindless the other day, so my mind drifted to a book from my childhood, and I was remembering Ricky Tiki Tavi, this little mongoose who could kill cobras in Africa. And it was a fascinating story. And I just like, you know, it was such a strong character. Ricky Tiki who? Ricky Tiki Tavi. Ricky Tiki Tavi. That's, that's good. I think, good alliteration. I there. think it's actually, now, I think it's really part of one of the Jungle Book series. Um, but yeah, it, it, it stuck with me as a kid as this really strong character who could take on difficulty. And that was, that was cool to me. Well, Eric, we have a special treat today, a special um, episode today, in that we have a superstar children's book author. Superstar. Superstar. <laughs> Mr. Jesse Bird is with us today. Thank you, Jesse, for being here. Take a minute to introduce yourself and tell, tell us what you've, uh, what you've been up to. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you so much, uh, Matt and Eric, for, for having me on. I'm really excited for this chat. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, my, my name is Jesse Bird. I'm a children's book um, author and publisher, amongst a few other things. And um, I focus on diverse children's book literature. So my the stories that we create for the publishing house that we have called Jesse B. Creative focuses on stories that are not only featuring diverse characters, but are created by diverse creators. And so saving more space to make sure there's authentic diversity um, throughout the, the pages and throughout the stories is something we really, we really cherish. That's that's uh that's awesome. And Eric, I know that you've been binge reading, not binge watching, but binge reading some of Jesse's books of late. 
um, really enjoying those with your 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 kids and your family. So I'm curious, what have been some of those experiences, and what have what have been some of the conversations your family's been having around some of Jesse's work? Yeah, I absolutely love children's books because I can get through them. I am notoriously yes. we can uh, finish them. Yes. Yeah, like I have like I don't know how many unread books on my. They have on pictures my, uh, too. I, I like <laughs> really and cool we pictures. Artwork, like, Jesse, the not, artwork not in pictures, your books is, art. Art. The artwork is is spot on, man. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. Uh, thank you. It's fantastic. But I, I, no, I do love kids' books. So I um, read through all four of your books, like binge, and like one is one is we're gonna get to it. It's like two hundred eighty pages. It's it's like a it's like a, a, a I don't know what you would a call it, but book. it's not a it's not a board, but it's not a kids kids book. It's it's a it's an intense book. I liked it. But anyway, I was reading through. Sunny Days, or all your books last night again with my daughter, my seven-year-old. And uh, we get through them all, and she's like, does he have more books? She, I mean, she's loving them. And I'm like, no, he doesn't, but he does have a book that he's working on the storyline that's coming out in December. It's The the Mermaid Princesses. And The Mermaid Princesses, the author is a uh, an African-American um, lady, Maya Cameron Gordon, and, and she has a little video on the Indiegogo page as she's pre-selling her books. And she talks about why she wrote the book. And her daughter loves fantasy, and uh, she wanted her daughter to read books where characters looked like her daughter, where her, her daughter could identify to the characters. So we watched that little um, we watched that little video clip, and then I read her Sunny Day again, and I said, "Hey, I'm talking to I'm talking to Mr. Jesse tomorrow. Is there any is there any comments about your book that you'd like me to share with him? What, what did you like about Sunny Day?" This was her comment, seven-year-old. She goes, I like how he made a lot of people black in sunny days because most books don't have black people in them. No. (laughs) So I was like, oh, tell me more about that. She goes, well, you know, I just realized most of the books that I've read, all the people are white. And I thought about Mm. that, and, and, and my next comment to her was, well, don't you think that, and I named some of her, some of her black friends. I said, don't you think your friends like to read books where they can see the characters that look like them. And she's like, yeah. And I, I thought that was just such a, a cool, just observation that, uh, uh, that she made unsolicited. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to, to notice these things in a vacuum. Right. And that's why it's so important to not erase any colors from the rainbow, but to add more colors to the rainbow. Like we just, so we can appreciate, all of the Roy G. Biv on the spectrum. Mm. We need to be able to make sure that we have those colors because they do they, that diversity because it adds contrast to the material that's out there um, just to make sure that, you know, everyone has a place and, and everyone can see themselves reflected. That's really important. Yeah, you know, and I don't know if this is the right time to make this point, but I, I've always thought this idea of colorblindness is a real fallacy and, and kids notice color all the time. I mean, what, Eric, in your story, your daughter did not have to be told that people are different shades. She noticed that. And she had a com- she had an insight about that and a comment about that. Jesse, it seems like it's really important to you to, to have very diverse characters in your books. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, about that for you. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we practice this, this sort of concept. And when I say we, I mean me, the illustrators that I work with, um, you know, any editor that's assigned to a specific project, because even though I do do editing for other projects, it's really hard to edit your, your own work. But we practice this thing, um, that, that we call vertical diversity. And what that, what that means is, you know, as, as I shared a little bit earlier, for example, Dreamcatcher is set in Thailand. It was inspired by a trip to Thailand. 
And that's really what inspired sort of the setting for that book. And we were really passionate about getting an illustrator who was Thai. Hey, there it is. Thanks, Eric. Um, an illustrator who was Thai. So our illustrator, um, Nutafan Siriyaparaku, born and raised in Bangkok. And, and our characters are Thai. Our illustrator is Thai. Just to make sure that we are... And we have someone at the table who has that walk of life, who can tell us if we're getting it wrong, if we're messing it up and someone who's in, you know, integral to the creative process. Not not somebody who's sitting off on the sidelines, kind of submitting a, a design note every once in a while, but somebody who's literally handling all of the artwork, all of the depictions of these characters, because I can't draw worth a lick. So <laughs> so every book that you see, I will be pairing with somebody who has um, that that talent. And so mm. that's that's what we what we focus on is is not just diversity on the page, because what you'll see is that 50 percent of books featuring black kids aren't actually written by black creators. And that's a major mm. problem in the industry that I'm actually writing an article on now that'll be out in about a week or two just to show some of the metrics behind own voices. So I think everybody, every culture, every group is capable of telling their own stories. And they have people within those experiences who are more than happy to to, to tell about their walk of life. You don't necessarily need to reach over the aisle and and then have somebody who has no clue what it's like to be a, a, a young black boy or girl, then speaking from that experience and using that mouthpiece for the sake of checking a diversity box and things like that. And so mm-hmm. we kind of just want to make sure that it's 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 sincere, you know, and that the people who are who are being reflected are actually a part of cooking the meal. I love that. Um, got me thinking about all kinds of things. But you did mention that you're writing an article about that. Um, it, do you have a title of that that you could share now so that it, as people listen to this, they could they could find that? And is it something that we could put in our show notes for uh, listeners later? Um, yeah. So right now there are there are three spec titles kind of kicking around. Once it's once the title is finalized, I'll definitely be be sharing it with you. But it's it's all the heartbeat of it is just that theme that we talked about, just trying to 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 stay away from appropriation in children's books um, and, and what the numbers look like and mm-hmm. what some of the images look like in terms of what's on the market right now. It's actually quite disturbing when you peek behind the curtain and see just how many stories from minorities aren't written by people within that experience. And then therefore the sales money goes to people outside of the experience of yeah. the, the the cultures being reflected on the page. And so there's just a lot of opportunity there for us to just get better, you know, as a, as a publishing community. And I definitely want to come back to that particular topic. Um, yeah. uh, it, it, it does have me thinking about, I grew up in New Mexico and would read uh, Native American children's books or have them read to me. And, you know, it, it's now got me wondering, like, how many of those were written by Native peoples or were appropriations of those experiences? I, you know, I have no idea as a kid, but I, I can remember the stories about Cocopelli and other Indian figures and gods being... Uh, important to me as a kid and uh, you know the Zia sun god and the Zia symbol of New Mexico and all, all of those little those those imageries that are really important being in being part of my childhood experience but having no sense of the business side of that uh, Eric mentioned earlier uh, a book that you that you um, authored I think it's called the the penguin king king penguin, king penguin yes king king <laughs> penguin. king penguin and he mentioned that it was uh, longer and kind of alluded to or intimated that it deals with some some heavier stuff. So I, I wanted to ask you, are there children's books or are there adult books or are there just books that present themselves as adult or children? Is it is it a real distinction? 
Um, so the line's definitely becoming more fluid. And today's market is the most experiential um, publishing market that you'll see in terms of, um, or, or should I say, people taking risk. And uh, people are trying to get these really macro concepts being taught and, and find vehicles to feed them to kids earlier. And so you'll see books about, like, the books about racism now you know, kids books, picture books, board books, you know, that stuff largely didn't exist just a hand just a few years ago. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't a market space that people were comfortable having those conversations for that age level. And so on a wide scale, I mean, you may find some books here and there, but it wasn't going to be um, as, as celebrated as, as it is now or as widespread. And so the, the lines are definitely getting more fluid. Um, publishers are taking more chances. And also, you have to realize Amazon is responsible for 50% of book sales nationwide. And there are a million self-published books that come out every single year. So people are saying, look, I have a story to tell. And um, I want to tell it without somebody telling me how I should tell it. Like I, I want to wanna, tell it my way. I want to tell it direct, unfiltered, you know, mm-hmm. 100 proof straight to the people. And so there are a lot of books that enter the market that um, that, that don't go through sort of the the, the process of, of approval, should I say, from, from traditional publishing. Can we talk Eric, about... You, you have that book, right? You've, been, you've, you've, read, uh, you've read King Penguin? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, but, but hold on one second. I just want to make a quick, quick point. I was, you're talking about um, uh, you know, books being appropriated and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, just, I, just, I was looking up La Cucarachita Martina and uh, the, the more recent version, Martina the Beautiful Cockroach, which was written in English, was indeed retold by a Cuban woman. So I just wanted to make sure that that was a... Excellent. Let's just, just checking. Just checking. So yeah. So Matt, you asked about like children's books, and um, Jesse, I picked up King Penguin. I think I picked up a copy for me like on Saturday, maybe, and I opened it up. And if you don't mind, I don't like you. Probably cringe when people read read your your you know parts <laughs> parts of your book to you. But like, can I read um, like the opening paragraph and a half really quick? Because it, sure, it just please. it just struck me like I'm like this is a kids book it's it's great it says this is the prologue we're not even in chapter one this is the prologue where there is division there will be strife splitting one group for another assures danger will follow it begins as appreciation sure admiring each other's differences but once a disagreement pushes and patient sheds its fears those same differences become very dangerous they become lines in the sand. Pierre's father swept his focus across their small cave. And then a couple more sentences. Pierre harbored curiosity about the war for as long as he could remember its origins, its persistence, its survival. Still, he remained too timid to ask the pointed questions. This time, though, since his father brought it up, he guessed now was a good time as any. What started our war? I mean, how did we get here? And then it goes on to say, his father says, I was dropped into it. And I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, man, like this is. This is a social commentary to some degree. This is like it's prophetic, man. This is this is a kid's book. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely think you get more. Uh, you can expound on more territory for books that are for nine plus, twelve plus. So that's a middle grade chapter book, which obviously gives us a, a different bit of real estate than a children's picture book. But, you know, these issues are real issues that not only are affecting the world, but kids are actually growing up. And I mean, we choose to tell this story through the vehicle of penguins, which is my personal favorite animal. But mm-hmm. the issues that they're that they're facing are are very real. They're very human. Um, and so for us, sometimes we think it's too early to, to present certain realities to to young readers, nine, mm-hmm. 10, 11, 12 year olds. But sometimes those readers are already living in that reality. 
they're already living near war or in an active war area. You know, they're already living in poverty. They already know what hunger feels like. And so sort of sort of pretending that that experience isn't a part of the human experience isn't doing them a service that you're not protecting them from it. It's their reality. It's their life. Um, and you're, you're just not speaking to it. You're, you're not highlighting it. You're not giving it any acknowledgement. And so mm-hmm. I think it actually does a disservice when we don't find a way to talk about some of the real things that are happening and some of the real things that children, unfortunately, younger than we, we hope that they would, are enduring and are having to face. You know, and so for me, I don't like to try to shy away from reality or sincerity. I want to try to find a way that's, you know, grade level appropriate, of course, to open a dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, I mean, you're, you're dealing with what we would consider adult themes, war, loss, destruction, pain and suffering. But in any act of war that I was aware of that I can think of, there's, I have to acknowledge there's kids around that. There's kids around that. I have a friend who's a uh, counselor in New Orleans, and he works with a lot of school-aged children. And he was he was talking to this uh, kindergarten kid one day in New Orleans and asked him to draw a picture of his bedroom. And the, the child drew a picture of a bedroom that had things in it like you might expect a bed. But it had this stick leaning near the door. And my friend, the counselor, asked the, the kid what, what that was. And he goes, oh, that's a gun. Hmm. That the kid was fully aware of the violence in his neighborhood, the violence in his home, the violence around him. It's Those aren't adult themes or kid themes. Those are just human themes. Those are just the, the, the things that are around us. And so I'm, I'm curious about how do you, how do you, as an author, how do you handle these, these harder aspects of life in humane ways um, that still remain developmentally appropriate for the reader, if if that's a thing. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of it. A lot of it comes down to to context. A lot of it comes down to to world building and the vehicles that you use to communicate the stories. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the text on the page, the artwork. These are all. They're, they're just vehicles that we're using to communicate some sort of core purpose, some notion. Whether that's you know everybody deserves to be treated equally. You know, or, you know, something along that, those themes, everything else that's built around it is just a delivery system to, to hopefully help you understand and absorb or ask questions or connect. And so for us, what's really important is showing spectrum. So not everybody in a book is going to be one way. And that's one way of not pigeonholing a community or a group of people or an experience as, you know, these people are like that. You, it's important to show like in like in sunny days, we walk you through the neighborhood and you see different black entrepreneurs running different types of businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not all going to be athletes. They're not all going to be, you know, actresses and musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there are people who have a vast variety of interests. And I think that's one of the most important ways of, of showing that people can be anything and can do anything is to show the diversity of people doing and being anything. Mm-hmm. on the page. And so that's one of the ways that we make sure that people don't get pigeonholed um, in terms of taking complex issues. It, for us, it's like, it's like, it's like fractions, right? You're trying to boil it down to like the simplest nominator. So you're, you're trying to get away from all the jargon, all the politics, 
what's the human core issue that we're dealing with? Mm -hmm. It can often be summed up in a word or two. You know, we're often dealing with fear or we're dealing with jealousy or, or, or something along these lines. And that's our antagonist. That's the force that's pushing back. Now, what's our positive charge? What's what's our plus charge? You know, it's, it's going to be love. It's going to be compassion. It's going to be awareness. Um, but it's really hard to have compassion without first having awareness. So that's why it's important to talk about these things. Cause that's all King Penguin right there, man. Betrayal <laughs> and, and love and mm-hmm. uh, uh, friendship and, and loyalty. Yep. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about to make a bold statement. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I believe this wholeheartedly. And you and I have been kind of having some some – uh, we've been messaging messaging each other back and forth, so you kind of know some of my feelings and kind of how how much I like King Penguin. But yeah. we'll look at some other kind of in the same genre of children's books. And this is the bold statement: You look at Lord of the Rings children's yeah. books. When Lord of the Rings was written, it was written for nine and ten year olds. If you read the history of it, uh, it was written as one volume. And J.R. Tolkien's, I think, like ten year old nephew wrote a commentary on it that you know it's appropriate for ten year olds, right? <laughs> Harry Potter. Right, a little bit, little bit mm-hmm. different of a genre, but we're dealing with similar, similar uh, themes: war, destruction, mm-hmm. death, love, loyalty. Um, what Chronicles of Narnia? Right, war, death, destruction, fear, um, and and then your book. That's same thing um, through the eyes and through the through through penguins. You know, and as as I'm reading it, like I have picture, like I can see these penguins as people. It's Fascinating. So that's my bold statement. I, I'm, I'm putting this book in the same in the same that it's that a classic. It, it, this this book, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, forty years from now. Hopefully, there's um there's some you know there's some. Hopefully, this is number one of multiple in this series because you you left it open, man. You left you left me wanting more. No. Um, well, that's a good that's a good point to leave people at, and there's definitely more books in in that series. Awesome. Speaking of that, leaving people wanting more. I like. My wife and I are different about this. I like a movie that ends a little bit unfinished, a little bit f- frayed at the edges, where I get to kind of wonder what happened, you know. And in that way, the story follows me home, follows me into my day, and I continue to think about the characters. Other people really like a tidy ending. As an author. What, as a children's book author in particular, how do you balance those 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 different forces? Well, I'll give you guys a, a little bit to that. Every single book that I've put out so far is a series. So they're, they're all book one in their own pipeline of stories ah. to come. And for me, what's really what I admire in series and what I've always admired in series and what we strive for in the work that we produce is that every single book needs to be complete unto itself. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Russian dolls. You know, you're going to stack them, but each one needs to be a complete doll. So people have to have a satisfying sunrise, high noon and sunset within the narrative. And then you can tease and trail and lead and imply that there is more. But I think the, the the goal with every single book in a series is that it's satisfying in and of itself, that you feel like everything that we set you up for for the main a a story arc we we answered those questions we satisfied that curiosity we 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 completed the circle and so i think that's that's sort of the trick i think it's it's less about where you leave people and how you leave people it's more about did they feel like they had a full meal or did they feel like they showed up for a full meal and they got like 75 percent of the meal 
Did you did you make good on the promises that you made in the first act, in your second and third act? Um, you know, and things like that. I'm a little mm. different than you, Matt. Like I like because <laughs> I because it's not my story. I didn't write right. the story. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to imagine how it ends. But I don't want right. stories to end. I want them to keep going. But I want to know that the author has an end in mind that he's working towards. Yes. So it's kind of like um, it's kind of like uh, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. Have you you seen the movie? Have y'all seen the movie? So Absolutely. Yep. We went and saw it. Me and my wife went and saw it in the movie theater when it came out, and she had no idea that it was a trilogy. So the movie ends with Sam and Frodo walking through the mountains, and, and there's there's danger lurking, chasing them, right? And she's like, that was the stupidest movie. <laughs> I'm like, I look at him like, are you crazy? And then I, I told her it was a trilogy, and I don't think she's ever watched the, the final two because she was so mad because she just wasn't expecting it. So I knew that there was an end. I knew that the author was going somewhere. So that, that's kind of how I am. I, I like to know that there's an end. And, and as I read King Penguin, that's what I, I texted you. I'm like, dude, tell me there's a tell me this is a series or I have to choose my own adventure. Like I need to know, are you, are you taking me somewhere? Can I expect something? So even though it's not resolved, it is resolved, but it's not resolved. Um, right. I know that you're it's going somewhere and I'm okay with that. Exactly. Solve one conflict and now we're, we're jumping into another larger and different conflict. Oh, I'm excited. So speaking of, of your work and your books, uh, I think this would be a, a great time, if you're willing, to to read us a little something uh, from your work. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the passage that comes to mind, just to do a little table setting. So this is from a book called Real Jungle Tales. Um, it was illustrated by an artist in Brazil. Her name is Andressa Meisner. We're actually working on a few more projects together now. It was a really fun book to do. It took about a year and a half end to end, which is three times as long as Sunny Days, even though it's a third of the length. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, largely, and that's because of the, the, the rhyming structure. So when you're doing rhyming structure in picture books, it, it's almost like making a musical, I would imagine, where the words not only have to rhyme, but they have to advance the narrative or the plot or expand on character development. So they have to serve at least two purposes at once. They need to rhyme. They, they need to be genre appropriate, of course, they, and they also need to push the story forward. You know, you can't just be rhyming without any um, progression of the, the plot. And so, you know, this character, our main character, Z, and I can, I can tell you this much about the story without ruining it for you. She gets punished on Halloween. Um, she doesn't get to go trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. And they that have works. this tradition at her school where kids basically bring in all of their candy the next day to school and they get to like swap stuff. So kids are swapping chocolates and kids are swapping, you know, sours for sweets and taffy for hard candy. And she's watching everybody enjoying their Halloween candy, having a blast. And she obviously has none. She doesn't have any loot. She didn't get to go trick or treat. And so because of that, she comes up with a plan, her and her, her trouble buddy, her sidekick, they come up with a plan to, to try to trick the other classmates out of their candy, to try to trick them into giving some candy to them. And so this is what I'm about to, to read or, or recite is the very beginning of her beginning to, to trick her, her classmates. Um, so let me see if I can get this right off the top of my head. And if not, I have the, the file on my computer and I'll pull it up just in case I get, I get murky. Okay, so this is Z speaking to her classmates. 
Listen up closely and give me your ear. I have a secret that you need to hear. On Halloween night, by the skin of my teeth, I escaped from a jungle of monsters and beasts and creatures that creep when you lie down to sleep. They're headed this way, so we don't have much time. But this secret, I tell you, could help you survive. Because you see, zebras and jungles are tall as a roof. Bigger and meaner than ones at the zoo. Skin like a barcode covered in flies, one ear facing forward, one facing behind. They jump and they kick and blow smoke from their noses and gobble up kids from their heads to their toeses. So that that's a little bit of the transition. <laughs> All right. Now let me, let me just add this for context. So uh, you do readings. You go around and you read to, to groups of kids. Mm-hmm. Now Jesse is 6'8". He's one of the few people that I look up to. Literally, I look up to Jesse. Now, you don't just read these books as as Jesse, right? Tell tell us a little bit about about kind of the the whole context of you reading these books to kids. This is this is fun. Yeah, so pre-COVID, um, I would show up to a school or a library and we would have a scheduled reading. And I would say every blue moon, they never knew when it was going to happen. But every blue moon, I would show up in a ridiculous costume. So I have a zebra costume. Mind you, I'm six foot eight. I have a zebra costume with a head. I have a penguin costume that I'm absolutely crazy about. And I have some, some more costumes that I'm ordering now. I have a big bird costume which is really fun as well. Also because my last name is Bird. So I think that yeah. that's, that's a, it's pretty funny. Uh, and so, um, yeah. So every once in a while, I may just do a costume theme reading and show up to uh, an elementary school to read to some first and second and third graders, totally decked out because why not? It could be, you know, February. So do you drive, do you drive <laughs> to the school dressed up or do you change when you get there? Like what's kind of, is it in the, the trunk? Uh, Oh, no, I, I keep the costume in my backpack. I don't want to, you know, alarm people in the neighborhood that, um, I, you know, that, that my mind is functioning differently if I show up in March walking around six foot eight in a penguin costume outside. Yeah, we're going to put we're going to put a link to your website. There, there's pictures of it in there, man. I love it. You, I love you it. also have a, a great YouTube channel that I've been uh, enjoying working my way through. And I would uh, we'll put a link to that as well. Uh, transitioning a little bit to just to just writing. Um. And your own writing process, and then a little bit, I, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, which is um, the publishing industry, but a little bit about your own writing process. What, when did this start for you? What's this journey been like for you? Yeah, so that's, that's such a great question. I didn't know that I wanted to write as a career, that it was my passion until I was 22 years old. Um, the very first thing I remember wanting to be in life is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. <laughs> um, the second, which second, one? Which one? Donatello, absolutely. Of Pur- course, purple all day. Um, <laughs> after that, it, it was um, I wanted to be a psychologist, and and then from there, there was like this this weird dead space where I just didn't really feel pulled to anything. I mean, I was playing sports. I've been playing basketball my whole life, and I just kind of felt like that was the railroad track I was on. But I wasn't really giving much active thought to is this what I even like doing? Is it what I would want to do as a career? Um, and things like that. And so once I, I got injured at 22, we're actually playing against Kawhi Leonard's team at the time in college. Um, I jump up for a rebound, I come down and I feel my knee shift. And I was like, oh, what was that? And I come to find out that it was a lateral meniscus tear. Now, what's great about this, I did have to have surgery, but what's great about it is just a six to eight week recovery period. This isn't a career ending injury. It happens to plenty of athletes and plenty of different sports. But what it gave me was six to eight weeks to get off of the hamster wheel because sports was paying for school. So sports was very much my job. Um, It was paying for my tuition. It was paying for my housing. So, you know, it was 
it was how we keep the lights on um, and me get to my education. And so when I had that chance to actually sit still, pause, have this internal walk about and think about what lit me up, what really excites me, I realized that I've always been passionate about storytelling. It's always been my greatest passion and storytelling for young audiences, because those are the stories that, that lit me up. You know, my, one of my favorite childhood books is the Phantom Tobo. And that's because it showed me that you can be silly and fun and funny while also communicating value and, and sharing something of meaning with young mm -hmm. readers. But it doesn't have to be so stiff and stuffy and preachy. You can be ridiculous and still communicate something of importance to young audiences, which I think is, is just so fun. And so yeah. that was when I discovered I wanted to start writing at 22 years old. You know, one of the first things that drew me to you, Jesse, was I met your dad years ago at a, um, at a Saturday morning men's breakfast. And I don't know how you came up, but like, I guess like any proud dad, right? What do you do? You talk about your kids. And he mentioned that you were a writer, a business, I think he said a business writer. So like, huh, that's interesting. So I looked you up and I found you giving a presentation on business writing. And right around that time, I was really wanted to dive in. I wanted to get better as a writer to be able to communicate ideas. And I, and I listened to that presentation. It wasn't that long, but it was like one, two, three, four, five type of presentation. Do this, do this, do this, you gotta do this. And I thought like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta follow this guy. And like at that point, I didn't realize you were a children's book writer. Um, and then eventually we connected and we ended up having coffee last year and, and, and got to know each other a little bit uh, a little bit better. But that's what drew me to you was was that idea of, of business writing and how to communicate ideas to people clearly and to almost sell them on your ideas, to sell them on. And that's how uh, you presented it is you have to sit, you, you wrote this book, but now you have to convince people to read this book. Exactly. Um, I think business writing for creative writers and people who have an affinity for creative writing, I think business writing can be sort of scary or daunting or boring or just seem totally uninterested. But for me, you know, I spent a little bit of time in my professional career. I spent some time as editor in chief of Ernst and Young and some other things. And I absolutely adore business writing because it, it, it teaches you how to be efficient. It teaches you how to be on voice and on brand. And as we always talk about, there's two sides to, to, to the art of publishing, there's storytelling and there's story selling. And each enables the other. You know, the, the more you sell, the more opportunities you probably have to tell more stories. You know, and so you really do, it's like a left hand, right hand situation where even though you have a dominant hand, I encourage every single creative writer to at least take some sort of copywriting course, pick up a book, listen to a podcast, because once you're done with the creative aspect of telling this narrative, you're gonna have to write back of the book copy you're going to have to write um, blurbs. You're going to have to communicate to somebody who's never read your work and maybe doesn't even know you why they should give your work a chance. And that, when it comes to doing it in writing, that's sales copy. I don't care how you want to button it up, that's sales copy. And so the more comfortable you get um, selling your story with your words, I think the more equipped you are to serve your story and, and, and get it out there better. And so, so yeah, when I was giving that talk at Book Expo of America in New York, I think that was maybe two or three years ago, uh, the four points that I wanted to hit was called the VICE strategy. And just really simple acronym, voice, impact, clarity, and efficiency. And that's what you're looking for in, in any business writing. Are you on voice? Are you, are you grabbing them? Do, does your writing have impact? Uh, you don't want to be boring. That's 
probably the number one rule in any type of writing. So does it have impact? Clarity. Is it really clear for them to understand what you're asking, what you're saying, and what they should do next? What's the call to action? And then efficiency. Don't take don't take 10 words to say something you can say in two. Um, get to it. Get through it. And so those are sort of my four principles of business writing. And actually, they, they apply largely to creative writing as well. But but I have I have mad love for business writing. And I didn't think I would. When I first started, I was just like everybody else. Like, oh, no, not this. I just kind of did it because I needed some some work at the time. And then from there, I was like, oh, this is this is just storytelling of a different kind. This is, you know, just by by a different flavor. But yeah. Jesse, you started to talk a little bit earlier about the publishing industry and some inequities in the publishing industry. And I, I don't know a ton about that industry, nor those inequities. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But I'm very interested in supporting Black-owned businesses and learning more about economic forces that affect Black-owned businesses. And and how how does that show up in the, the publishing industry? Yeah, Matt, that's such a great question. And and to answer that, I definitely want to go back to um, sort of the beginning of, of my family's journey in publishing. So combined, my mother and I, we have about 31 years in the publishing industry. She started writing when I was 11, mm-hmm. but she started writing for adults. So she has about 27 published novels that are adult wow. fiction, very much adult fiction. Um, and a couple of those are New York Times bestsellers. Part of the reason why I didn't know I wanted to go into writing because I always felt like that was mom's thing, and I kind of want to find my thing. And then I found out that, of course, storytelling is this vast pool, big house with many, many rooms. And so, you know, you don't have to do the same thing just because you're both storytellers. And so when I sort of found my passion with within it as well, that those were the conversations we had around the dinner table. It wasn't just about the art of storytelling, my mom and I. It was about the business of storytelling agent percentages, mm-hmm. royalty contracts. What does it mean to earn out? Um, you know, will you get paid quarterly or twice a year? Um, you know, who owns your domestic and foreign rights? Do they, do they get audiobooks? Um, you know, is, is your copyright registered to you or is the, the publishing house trying to take your copyright for them, which they should never do, by the way, any authors listening, your copyright should, for the words should always be yours. Um, and so I knew when I discovered that writing for kids and telling stories for kids was my passion, I knew that there were all of these things in business that just could be so, so much better. There were only so many seats at the table for creatives of color. In fact, you know, my mom had to self-publish her first novel, and it was only when she sold 10,000 copies of the book, and it was well on its way to being a bestseller independently, a New York Times bestseller independently, did she then get a three-book deal from a traditional publisher. Nobody wanted to pick up her work. Uh, until she proved that as a black woman, she can write a book that sells and that people like and that they gravitate towards. And so those opportunities, the burden of proof, the, the amount of work you have to do just to climb your way in to an opportunity and how many seats there are at the table for creators of color, obviously is a huge issue and there's a huge disparity there. So that's why I knew when I got into the business, yes, I will do projects for traditional publishing houses, um, talking to Scholastic and some other places right now about different projects. But I will always want to have a domain where I can not only that we can make space for creators of color, but we can make sure that they're getting proper equity and royalties um, and, and things like that, because that's important for the longevity of authors, especially authors of color, is that they're, they have the right deal structure. They're getting the right payout on the front and the back and the advance and the royalties to make a living out of this. You know, these people have mm-hmm. kids in college, you know, they have kids who have need need dental dental work they have you know mortgages and so if you want them to continue creating in the space which most 
authors and illustrators, if they keep going and they keep learning, they're only going to get better. So their best book isn't likely going to be the first, second or third book. It may be their fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth book. You know, after they've learned more about their craft and learn more about the business of how to sell and built a database and they have name recognition. And so what we're trying to do to help be a part of the solution at, at Jesse B. Creative, the publishing house, is we want to become the Motown of children's book publishing. We want to become a place where we not only attract diverse talent, but we develop you creatively and professionally. We want you to know more about the business. We want you to know more about how to, how to sell, but we also want you to know more about the craft because you, you do have to get in the gym and you do have to get your shots up. Yeah. Um, if you expect to get better at this, you know, it's, it's just like anything else, you know, you have to spend time on task. And, um, you know, as mentioned, I mean, as we talked about a little bit offline, 50 percent of the books that are featuring kids of color, picture books, children's picture books aren't written or illustrated by people of color, which obviously gets dangerously close, close to appropriation. Um, you know, we have histories of blackface in this country, you know, H. Mima, Ben, you know, minstrelsy. And so it's dangerous when you have other cultures trying to speak to and through and about your story. And that's also unnecessary. I've met a ton of phenomenal authors and illustrators and storytellers from every single community. They are more than capable of telling their stories, given the right opportunities and the right support. No, it's interesting. You said a couple of things in there that, 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 that Matt and I talk often about is um, we, we talk about a lot of business owners are good at their craft. So a lot of creative writers are good creative writers. Um, but a lot of business owners are not necessarily good at owning and running a business. And it seems that that's a, that's a part of the industry that, that you've excelled in the, uh, not just the, the craft of writing, but the craft of operating that business. Yeah, that was something I feel so fortunate to have had a foundation in and at least a baseline understanding from from, you know, having having a parent in the industry. And then from there, since a lot of things have evolved and a lot of opportunities have grown, um, even from there, it's 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 been a, a learning curve. But if, if you're an author, if you're an illustrator, you are a business in today's publishing literary market. That's how you have to see yourself. Even if you have a deal with one of the major houses, Houghton Mifflin, Penguin, Scholastic, or you're going independent direct to market, no matter what you have going on, you need to always be about the business of trying to sell your stories and share your stories and build your brand and build your base on your own land. Because there may come a day where, say, you do your first two books at Houghton Mifflin, but the third book that you pitch them, they're not interested in that book. And so you walk it down the aisle to Scholastic and Scholastic is. Now, if all of the equity and all of your, your bases is stuck inside of Houghton Mifflin's publishing company, then you're not the one who has the value. You haven't been building your social. You haven't been building your newsletter list. You haven't been building your website um, traction and, and unique monthly impressions. And so you basically have all the equity tied into the house and you don't want to do that. You are a brand. You want to make sure that you are building your own stats, your own traction, your own following so that no matter where you go, you're an asset because today's age publishers are asking what's your following. They will ask you what's your marketing plan and they would expect you to have an idea of, all right, if we print this book with you, how, who are you going to, who are you going to, who are you, what are you going to do to sell it? That's good. That's good. The Motown of children's book publishing. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Can we, um, Matt, do you have a follow-up to that? Because I want to get to like a quick, uh, I've got like a list of questions that I have to ask you. I have to get yeah, through them and no I'll tell problem. you why no, in a second. We'll Matt, I, I'll let you comment I, on that real quick. I do have a, um, a, a related question, which 
I saw on your website that you have some investment opportunities for people who may be, be interested. Now, I, I really was interested in that, just in the sense that um, this podcast is about relationships, but it's also about finance. It's also about entrepreneurialism. Um, and so it, I just wanted to, to hear a little bit about, I, I'm not saying pitches. I'm just, what, what are you, what is, what's the opportunity there with you? Yeah, absolutely. So we are about to enter our, our fundraising round for our seed for the publishing for the diverse publishing company. And and what we're seeking overall is 2.5 million for an 18 month runway. And that will allow us to produce anywhere from 16 to 20 children's books and really get them the marketing and the equity and the support that they need to actually have a viable splash within the market. And so we're, we're handling all of our sort of investment side and in, in the platform through Carta. And we will be letting investors know, which is why there you can sort of sign up to be alerted on the website of when everything is 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 ready for for you all to start making um, investments. But, you know, we want people to have access to opportunity for equity. You know, we want people to, to, to feel like this is a company and a publishing house that is about the work of the people, of equality, of equity, of, of speaking to things that. Maybe some of the bigger houses um, don't necessarily want to touch because they feel like it may be dangerous, detrimental to their brand if it doesn't go well. Uh, we want to be able to take a little bit more calculated, educated explorations in speaking with kids about certain topics and having a lot of fun doing it. Like nothing we do ever wants to be preachy. I mean, Matt's sort of read our books. We like to have a lot of fun. Um, and because we think that if you bore kids, you'll never get to teach kids. So no matter how important your message is, if they're bored, you know, that that's it. And so if you don't, if you don't engage them meaningfully, then, you know, and so we're really important. We're really, you know, big on that sort of thing. And that was what the investment piece is, is that we are going to start fundraising. We are going to start bringing in equity partners and, and we would love for, for anybody who feels like the mission of diversity in publishing and children's books is important to them to really consider going on the website and signing up to be on our newsletter. That's cool. And along those same lines, just, just, um, you also, you don't just write, but you also consult people who are writing, right? You, you work with, with, with artists who have ideas and you help edit it. You help storytell. Um, you help with the, the consulting on the, on the publishing end, right? And those types of things, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, so as a publishing house, you know, we we've been internally funded, totally bootstrapped up until this point. So there's only so many stories that we can, from a capital standpoint, afford to back. But there are so many more great creators with so many awesome stories that we still want to be a part of helping you professionally get your work out there, because here's sort of a, a, a fun, a fun stat. Um, less than five percent of books, manuscripts submitted to traditional publishers make it past the first round of review. Most of them get um, rejected for really fixable things like how you submitted your your work. Did you follow the guidelines? Are there plot holes, mm. character development issues, something that a, a, an experienced professional editor could have helped you catch before you took your step, before you went into that sort of job interview, so to speak, before you submitted your work. And so it's it's important for for me and for us to provide those services to where even if uh, you know, our table is full. We still want to help you get your voice out there in the most meaningful way to you. And so we have publishing consultations to help you figure out, you know, what path is best for you and give a simple, plain English overview of publishing and how everything works. 
and we have um, editing packages so that you can make sure that, you know, your first step is your best step if you're submitting to a publisher, because that's going to be the hardest thing mm -hmm. to get past is the first round. After you get past the first yeah. round, you actually have a 67% chance of getting a book deal, um, according to Publishers Weekly. So you got a good chance if you can just get past the initial wave of review. And a lot of that is making sure that you don't have story errors and submission errors that were largely fixable if you had employed the help of somebody who sort of knows where to place the energy. Awesome. So we're going to, we're going to change gears here real quick. This is the speed round. Okay. These yeah, are questions nice. that I have to ask. I told my yeah, daughter, so. I was talking to you and I said, do you have any questions for, for Jesse? So I have five or six questions. You know, we don't have, we don't have time to, to get too deep, man. All right. But, but they're important. All right. So number one, and, and people listening, this, you may be, you know, you might not necessarily understand the context of these questions, but all the better reason to go buy Jesse's books. All right. So number one, why is the rabbit, the queen of nightmares? Why is the rabbit, the queen of nightmares? Yes. She's the queen of nightmares and dream catcher for Remy, who is the, the dreamer. And Remy had a traumatic experience when she was even younger than she is now, where she was at an animal farm and she, she sort of fell and rabbits were coming in for feeding time and they sort of like had this stampede of, of rabbits who just kind of hopped over. And of course they didn't hurt her. This is the story behind the story, man. This is fantastic. Character development. And so for her, it was rather traumatizing to just have like a herd of stampeding, hopping rabbits, Perfect. you know, all over you. And that, that was sort of where her fear developed of, of rabbits. I sense, I sense a, a prequel. Um, where did you get the idea of giant animals? Where did I get the idea of giant, giant animals? So scale is always something to me that's, that's amusing. You're making something that's big, small, or making something small, big. I sort of like that juxtaposition. And so when it came to real Jungle Tales especially, I think we really wanted to play with size because she was trying to tell a scary story, yeah. right? And so uh -huh. often it's, it's size and scale for kids that's really, really scary. Okay. All right. This is a good one. If dream catchers were a real thing, not saying that they're not, this is, this is a seven-year-old asking, if they were a real thing, would you want yours to be strong, brave, or a leader? Ooh, strong, brave, or a leader. That's a great question. And I, and I hate to go off road, but I think intelligent would be the one that I would want to go with. Um, I would want them to be thoughtful because as you'll see in the other books in the dream catcher series, some of these problems are not coming right at you. This isn't an all out melee. You know, you really are going to have to think about how to solve the problems of how to stop these bad dreams from. All right, we're going to go with leader because leaders, good leaders are thoughtful, leaders, right? Leaders, the closest one. Okay. Yeah. All right. For sure. All right. Does sunny days take place in New Orleans? And if not, how did you get the idea? Because dancing in the streets to music, carrying umbrellas sounds a lot like New Orleans. <laughs> Yes, great question. Sunny Days is loosely based in New Orleans. We didn't name New Orleans specifically because we know natural disasters happen everywhere on the planet. And so we didn't want to put the name in, but absolutely it's it's based in, in New Orleans and obviously is inspired by the city reco recovering, a lot of the city recovering after Hurricane Katrina. Awesome. Two more, two more. We're almost done. This one's easy. Yeah, let's do it. Do you like peaches? Oh, I love peaches. I think okay. kiwi is probably one of my favorite fruit though. Both, okay. both, are fuzzy. <laughs> both are fuzzy. Both are fuzzy. Because big you juicy like peaches. Fruits. That's uh, that's that's uh, sunny days. Yeah, are you yeah. eat, do you eat a kiwi skin on or skin off? Skin off, skin off. It makes a mess, but I do eat it skin off. <laughs> yeah, right. there's a kid in my neighborhood that used to eat it skin on, and I had never seen that before. That was wild, but it oh, works. Man. It works. <laughs> Whatever. 
do do you matt do you buddy um, all right last one last one how do you come up with the names for the people in your books um, so some are inspired by real people that I know. So in, in sunny days, you know, Miss Shirley. Shirley is my grandmother's name. It's also my my godmother's name. Um, Mr. Pip, that's an uncle of mine. Pip is an uncle of mine. And Mr. Johnny is also another uncle of mine. But Martine was a name that was, was totally, you know, designed for this particular narrative. We wanted it to sound Afro-French as, you know, New Orleans culture is largely inspired by. And so that was what was important to us. So sometimes it's the setting and the location. Sometimes it's the personal connection. Sometimes it's the world that they inhabit that, um, you know, gives gives their name. Now, this is my question because you, you said something that made me think of it. W- Sherry in King Penguin, who mm-hmm. was she? In, was, was she inspired? Like I'm reading that and I feel like I, I feel like the character is a quintessential New Orleans uh, woman is like am I just her her speech her vernacular just kind of the, the attitude the, the the way she says things is that yeah Sherry's okay. definitely inspired by a real life human um, okay. interaction and, and a relationship that I know um, I think her family's from New Orleans but she's from Oakland and you know okay. she's she's a dear relationship of ours and she's just fantastic and I just wanted to sort of put her in in the narrative too okay awesome space. Jesse, this has been a lot of fun. I want to give you an opportunity just to, if there, are there any closing thoughts that you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, just that in a capitalistic you know, economy, you largely vote with, with your dollars. And to put it that plainly is that if you want to see more diversity, you want to see more diversity by diverse people, the easiest way to do that is to, is to, to financially support the work of and the businesses of diverse people um you know posts and petitions are fantastic but what i'm seeing here recently with all of the people really making the economic effort to 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 say like no this is how i show i want to see more of this is that i'm going to add fuel into this tank and i'm going to make sure that this business um has has some gas in the tank to do some of the things that they want to do and so um if that's a mission that's important to you diversity in children's book literature i happen to think it's one of the first ways kids are introduced to the world it's through the, the books and the cartoons that they that they read. And so we want to make sure that the world is reflective of the diversity that they're going to live within and amongst in a global society, in a global economy. And so for us, it's really important to introduce that early in a way that's fun, that they allow to have a good time and that they can connect with these characters. So if that's important to you, you can find um, my work and our work at jessebcreative.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-B as in boy, creative.com. And I'm happy to personally sign out any copies, autograph and personalize any copies that, that you purchase via the website. It's also available on Amazon as well. All the books are available there except for Dreamcatcher. It will be available there next week. But um yeah, we would just love to build that relationship with you, your family, your communities. And because, you know, we have 17 stories in the queue. We have five right now being developed and three that'll be out by before the end of this year. So we got a lot. We have a lot of fun we want to have with you guys. And so we hope we get that opportunity. So please check us out. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the same thing at Jesse B. Creative. And also, I'm going to put a plug in here. You can also yeah. go to his website and gift books to kids. And I think that's yeah. really cool that you have that. Um, uh, I know like around Christmas time, you'll, you'll put out messages asking people if they want to uh, gift books to kids, but that's a really good way to get uh, books into the hands of kids. Matt, any, uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, just on that topic. I mean, uh, um, 
You can, I imagine you can gift books to your kid's school, to your kid's teacher. Your, you know, you, you regularly want to give your kid's teacher a gift. Instead of another Starbucks card, think about it, gifting a, a great book from uh, Jesse B. Creative. Um, Jesse, thank you for your work. Um, you have found a way somehow to be both a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle in us and a psychologist <laughs> all in one by being a children's <laughs> book author. Thank you for inspiring kids around the world, um, my kids, Eric's kids, uh, and in doing so, building us, building our families. Dude, you're inspiring adults as well. <laughs> so thank you for being a part of building us. As we always say, invest in your relationships. Jesse, thank you for doing that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matt and Eric. This has been a fantastic chat, and I've, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.